yeah, it's more about finding like what keeps you stable, what keeps your energy going, what if you can make the right decisions for yourself. And it, it's, yeah, I, I guess it's pretty complex. I mean, I've found, I think I've found something that works for me, but I know Absolutely. that it's not the solution for everybody. So that's why I don't like tell everyone they should go yeah, do yeah. the same thing as me. That's also why I'm exactly. like totally a hundred percent, uh, like open with I put everything on Strava because I'm like if someone wants to copy what I'm doing go for it but you don't have the same life as me so it won't work the same way welcome or welcome back to the virtual podcast running long I'm your host Francesco Puppi. I'm a professional athlete for Nike and also a Bertrand coach. Happy New Year to everyone listening. This is actually the first episode I'm recording in 2024, and I'm very excited to bring you another season of the Running Long podcast. I hope you're all doing well and that your base training for whatever goals you may have this year is going for the best. Let's get started with today's episode. Today's guest is Katie Scheid, a professional trail runner for the North Face, from the US, but living in France. Katie is definitely one of the most well-known and established trail runners in the world. She's just been awarded the second place of the Trail Runner of the Year Award presented by Free Trail, as well as the second place of the historic Ultra Runner of the Year Award by Ultra Running Magazine. She's also a 2022 UTMB winner a Western States runner-up in 2023 with a time that would have won every edition but last year. She also placed second at OCC last year and she won Diagonal de Fou in 2023. Besides, of course, a long list of world-class performances in the past years in her resume. Katie currently lives in the Mercatur region of the French Alps with her partner and elite trail runner himself, Germain Granger. She's a geologist and she loves spending long days moving through the mountains, whether that's running, skiing, biking, or a combination of all, all these three sports. In this episode, we mostly talk about Katie's training and Katie's approach to racing. We also learn about dealing with sponsors, brands, and media, living in France, and the current state of the sport of trail running. And as always, Katie is extremely thoughtful and interesting. So I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you will find it very inspiring and that you will also learn something as I did. For those of you who are new here, Bertrand is the number one training app for trail and ultramarathon runners of all levels. Our mission is to make training accessible to everybody and everywhere through affordable coaching. That's why all our coaching plans cost $25 a month. With your Bertrand subscription, you will get a personal coach who checks in with you each week to answer your questions, adjust your training plan, and keep you accountable and inspired. For those of you who want to give training with Bertrand a try, you can take 30% off your first month of training with the code RUNNINGLONG30. So here we go. Without further ado, please welcome Katie Scheid. Katie Scheid, welcome to the Running Long podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool to, to chat with you. Of course. Yeah, it's good to see you again. Uh, I was just remembering last time we met, it was 
at UTMB and I was like freezing my ass off in the anti-doping room. And I think I borrowed your North Face jacket because I was like shaking and freezing after after the race because of the effort. And of course it was like August. So it was like 30 degrees, but I was still <laughs> freezing. <laughs> and Yeah, uh, there was a lot of carnage in that room. It's okay. yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, happy to to see you. <laughs> How is it going and how is the uh, how's the winter treating you? uh, things are going a lot better now than they were a few weeks ago. Um, I live down in the southern French Alps. Um, so actually, for you being in Italy, it's just on the basically the French side of the mountains close to Cuneo. So. Uh, we're very close to the Italian border, actually. But um, yeah, we didn't have snow until until just last week. So we were very happy to have some real snow to ski on. Um, still need a tiny bit more to cover all those bigger rocks, but we're trying not to complain and just be happy with what we have <laughs> for now. yeah what's the altitude of the place <laughs> where you live um, our village is at 1,500 meters. So we normally can just ski from the door. Um, and yeah, we don't live in a ski resort, so it's just like real ski touring from the door. Um, and then there's also some ski resorts close by that aren't too far to drive to. So if, if which is what we were doing before it really snowed because they had some, you know, artificial snow for us to ski on. Yeah, but it's it's not as fun. I was thinking like, yeah, I think in the southern side uh, of the Alps, there hasn't been as much snow as in the north. And um, you also live in a, like, not necessarily like super wild, but it's a little bit like off the beaten path compared to, you know, Chamonix and the Dolomites and all the northern alpine resorts and popular destination because I think I've been in the Cuneo province just a couple of times in my life and in my mind those are just like wild and pretty far away mountains um, and it's I think it's really cool that you live there yeah by i mean by american standards it's it's not that yeah um that's true wild <laughs> but by the standards of the alps it's quite wild um i think one thing that jamal like always kind of said to me when i was first visiting here is like you know what's cool about here is that when you're on top of a mountain you don't look down on a city like when we our view is we never have a city or like you know lights in our view when when we're in the mountains which I didn't realize really because this was mostly the place I was visiting. And then in the U S you can find more of those places, but yeah, it's true. When you run in Chamonix, like you can kind of always see Chamonix or you can see Cormier or, you know, another large city. Um, and here it's really just, you just see other mountains. So that's a pretty Yeah. unique, a pretty unique thing about here. And we also live, um, on the edge of the Mercantour National Park. So it's Yeah. actually one of the few national parks in France. Um, so it's quite well like protected in terms of um, yeah, traffic and bike, like, you know, there's the rules like you can't bike in the park, you can't have a dog, um, you can't hunt. So for Americans, it's pretty like normal, <la
was it an intentional decision to move to that area or was it because Germain was already living there? Yeah, I blame it more on him. Um, he grew up in Les Alpes, um, <laughs> so in the northern Alps, close to Grenoble. yeah. Uh, but his uh, mom's side of his family is from Nice. So when he was like in middle school, they moved to Nice. Um, and of course, when you grow up uh, in a ski resort, like in a beautiful ski resort in the northern Alps next to the glacier, and then you find yourself on the French Riviera, uh, the first thing you start looking for is where the closest mountains are. So he found, uh, I mean, he discovered the Maracontour, like kind of through living in close to Nice as a teenager. Um, and when he had the opportunity to choose where he wanted to live, he chose to live here. And that's when I met him when he was already living here. Um, I was living in Zurich and I would visit quite a bit and I really liked the place too. So it was never a question of like me liking or not liking the place I had always wanted to like live somewhere like this. So it was an easy choice. Cool. <laughs> so um, I was running this morning and I was thinking, okay, this afternoon I've got a podcast with Katie Scheid and like what a privilege, what can I learn from her and what can also be interesting for our audience? Like what questions should I ask? Um, and then like I made a list of questions, but then I was like, this is not like, I think the conversation should just go wherever. <laughs> whatever we want it's it will be more interesting so i think um we'll just go by feel by if you if you agree Yeah, totally. <laughs> That works for me. yeah so um i well in the past 10 days or so i think um the free trail trail runner of the year award was released and uh You were in second place with uh, Premi Bonnet, um, so of course, congrats on that. I think it's a it's a great recognition. And um, I was also listening to the podcast with Dylan when he commented on your versatility and impressive range of competitiveness that you displayed this year. And you replied that there are other athletes that are. doing the same, at least at the, at the same degree as you, for example, Jim Walmsley with his 2019 Western State, followed by a really good run at Sierra Zinal that year. And uh, you also mentioned my name, so I, I wanted to thank you for that. Um, but how do you feel about being in the second place and about the, the list of the top 10 trail runners of the year award? Um, yeah, I mean, it's always cool to be recognized for anything in life, right? Like if <laughs> having outside uh, validation is always nice, for sure. Um, I think it's really cool what Dylan is doing with Free Trail. And I think the ranking stemmed more from a little bit of confusion with with the ultra runner of the year, which was traditionally an American or North American ultra running focus. ranking which is very specific actually if you really think about it um so i think it was cool to to kind of expand it to the rest of the world and try to compare people at different distances which is always like super difficult to do um obviously there's way there's a huge american bias in this because Yeah. not that many people outside of the u.s are like that aware of free trail and that that yet um but i'm 
I still know that people in other countries are voting, which is, which is cool. Um, yeah. So I would say any type of like public voting thing is going to be biased, but, um, I still like seeing your name next to Remy Bonet is like, that's pretty cool. You know, like <laughs> Remy is someone that I admire. Um, and yes, like kind of being considered at close to the same level as him is like, yeah, that, that actually was really, uh, yeah, it was kind of a big thing for me to, to see. It was like, okay, that's really cool. Like someone that I kind of, yeah, you know, watch on social media, on Strava, like in person, who I really look up to, like that I have my name next to theirs. So that's cool. Yeah. And um, did the, the results of the voting match your personal choices? Did you submit your choices? Or the, I did. I did vote. Or? I don't... I... <laughs> I felt like it was so long before <laughs> I was trying to remember who I had voted for. And I was like, I can't even remember because I remember, especially for the guys, it being super difficult. Yeah. Um, I think as someone who I'm someone who follows like every part of the sport, like from the VK to to like, yeah, to UTMB, to Diagonal Depu, which is longer. Um yeah, I really do follow all parts of the sports. And then to try to compare someone, you know, the winner of Sears Enel versus the winner of UTMB, like it's hard to choose which performance is better, which athlete deserves a higher ranking. Um, yeah, it's really tough. So, but yeah, I don't quite remember who I voted for, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it's fair. Um what do you what do you think like about the narrative that is very focused on ultras um and like people who are running shorter distances have this like sort of disadvantage compared to them uh and it's it's pretty evident in in the free trail award for example where most people are ultra runners of course because they're more popular and people think that you know, those races are more recognized or even more competitive. Um, what do you think is the responsibility of the media in this type of storytelling? Yeah, that's a tough question. Well, it's a tough thing, right? Because everyone kind of like resents each other or they like want something that somebody else has. Um, I think a lot of it just stems from the fact that in the US, the sport is ultra running. And in Europe, traditionally, it was more like mountain running. And ultra running has caught on a lot in Europe recently. Um, so I would say, on average, an American consumer of trail running, media results, athletes, whatever, they're like only following ultra races, because that's what the sport is to them. And maybe somebody who lives in Europe is following a little bit more closely, something like Sears Inal or Zegama or the Marathon du Mont Blanc, um, or even like the World Mountain Running Circuit. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that's like that's hard to find a solution for is the fact that when you like when we do a race like UTMB. Um, which is so well covered, like with live cameras, with tracking, you know, you can watch the live coverage in your language. You can find it in every language. So it's easy for anyone to tune in, watch it, and it's on for an entire day. 
So you have an entire day to like watch an athlete on the, on the live to like be refreshing the thing while you're at work. <clears throat> and I think it gives people <clears throat> a way, a way longer amount of time to connect with the race, with the athletes. And you when you're consuming the same media for like 24 hours at the end, you have sort of a connection. You're like, Oh, I was following Francesco when he was in Cormier. And then I saw that he was in La Folie and, you know, you feel like this connection to the athletes, whereas you can't really get that as much in the, like Sears, you know, it's done in yeah. less than two hours. So if you are in the U S and you're asleep while it's happening, you wake up and you just read the results and you're like, okay, interesting. And then, two days later like you forget um so that's that's something that would be hard to it's hard to approach that because you can't just make the race longer because then it's not the same race yeah i had never really saw the the problem from the same perspective because like thinking about like uh, what golden trail series is doing for example like trying to make the races on a two-hour format that is good on TV, for example, like comparable to a soccer game or or anything like that. Um, but it's I, I agree very much with what you said about the connection that the public can make with the athlete during like a long ultra, during a long amount of time. And um, like you don't have to necessarily follow the live for the whole 24 hours, but if you tune in, multiple times during the day, like 10 minutes here and half an hour there. I think it it does give you this sort of um, almost feeling of participating to the effort with the athlete that is is really cool. And that, it, and that a normal um, two hour live or yeah, like a two hour race probably doesn't give I mean, it's it starts and it's it's very exciting to follow the action because things are developing really fast, um, but you don't feel as involved as in the other case, probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like as I follow the goal, like when Golden Trails is broadcasting things live, like I will follow yeah. the race and you know let it ruin my entire morning, like sitting there watching it with my <laughs> coffee. But I also have a huge benefit that I know most of the people running. Like when they show a drone yeah, shot, I know who it is. Um, Before the commentator. So <laughs> yeah, and you can like connect really easily. Like you, because you're like, oh, it's my friend. Oh, that's somebody I met one time at a race. They were nice. Oh, cool, they're there. But I think it's harder to tune in as just the general public. And I guess you can, but. It's it's also such a short time frame. So, yeah, if you miss it, you miss it. I would say if I'm doing something at the same time as the Golden Trail race, I wouldn't like go rewatch it because it's done and I can just look up the results. Um, whereas when it's you know I don't know like Lavaredo, I can check four different times like while I'm out running where people are or something. So, yeah, it's. I think that there has been a lot. Uh, there's been so much done for at least in the races that fall under golden trail um, for live coverage, which has been really cool to see. Um, but now it's yeah trying to figure out how to make people like put it on their schedule to tune in at that time and really connect with what's going on. They're, they're not quite there. Yeah. I don't think so. 
Yeah, I think, I think they found like some the... of the media stuff has been going in the right direction. Like when they, yeah. especially the uh, like series that was on YouTube, um, you kind of get longer interactions with the athlete, basically, where you like hear who you are, where you live, like what your background is. But I think you have to be really interested in a 40K race to do that. Whereas ultra running is something that like the mass, like the general mass public is kind of it's like their big challenge of the whole year so there there's maybe more people who are interested in a 100k than a 30k because there's not that many people who show up to a 30k race wanting to run like incredibly fast yeah that's true that's also true um it's maybe more relatable for a lot of people who run recreationally or just for fun instead of competitively and that's perfectly fine of course um what do you think about the like being an american living in europe of course um i think you are like the best best person to ask this question what do you think about the european trail running scene at a pro level here in europe um in terms of like ultra like how running? people are approaching the sport um the pro athletes here because i see um, differences okay. in between like the american way and the european way but i'm interested in hearing your perspective and what you find interesting here what you find that is maybe a limit uh, what you find more difficult i honestly think it's becoming way more like more and more similar between the US and Europe. I think now that there's just more uh, sponsorship like money in the sport for athletes that there's more people taking it seriously. There's more people like, yeah, actually targeting a race and not just showing up at a race. Um, and I don't think that really changes much between continents. Um, for sure, like the whole racing scene is a little bit different because in the U.S., a lot of the races are restricted on yeah. participation numbers. So that creates just like a totally different dynamic because you have. Yeah, you can't have as dense a field because they have to limit it at some point. I mean, Western States does a really good job getting as many elites as possible. Um, but you have to remember that cuts into the people who have been waiting in the lottery for like 10, 15 years. So at some point you kind of have to be like, wow, okay, I'm taking a spot from someone who's been waiting to do this forever. And I just like got handed this thing because I want to race. Um, so there's like a little bit different culture there. I think when people are at a race, there's a bit more like, I think they feel maybe a little bit happier to be there because they, maybe they waited five years to get a spot. Um, in Europe, for sure, there's races that you have to like, maybe you don't get in the first time, but most of the time you can just sign up if you sign up on time. Um, so that that changes the dynamic a little bit. Um, otherwise, it's not that different. It's a little bit, obviously, you have like the American sort of... Uh, vibe like a little bit more like low-key more colorful of, and fun yeah, but... <laughs> in terms of attitude i think it's, it's yeah. a little different yeah the attitudes for sure is a little different um i think because again like 
trail running in the U.S. comes more from ultra running. Um, and ultra running traditionally is like in the U.S. at least was like a lifestyle sport, more yeah. like I would put it more in the category of like surfing, not like a high perform. Well, now surfing is also a high performance sport, but, um, you know, it's more like, okay, I live out of my truck and drink a beer and I don't know, uh, camp in the desert and I go for a 50 mile run, you know, in like shirtless with my handheld bottle. (laughs) This is like a huge generalization, but that's very different than how it's caught on in Europe, at least I think because in Europe it's, more it's I mean to be honest it's really come from UTMB we didn't like have 100 mile races well because miles isn't like a relevant um unit in in Europe but anyway like it comes from UTMB right like that you don't find that many ultra races in Europe like old ultra races you have Templier and you have UTMB and then you have you know some traditional long races like the Spartathlon or like Comrades in Africa. But otherwise there's not that many ultra races outside of the US. Um, So it's just really a different culture. So because I think it's coming more from like mountain running in Europe, it's just mountain running, but then like put at long, super long distance. There's a bit more like focus on like the performance side and a little bit less on this like lifestyle yeah 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 i totally agree and uh it's actually you know my approach as well like i come from truck and field and not necessarily from a, an ultra running background like i wasn't born as an ultra runner so i'm very interested that and inspired by the american way but i can't deny my backgrounds and <laughs> like the performance and running fast and running on the roads and and all of that. And uh, I think one of the key differences from between Europe and the U.S. is also, it also comes from the geography. Like the terrain is is just different, the type of trails and um, the type of access that people have to the trails. Um, We don't have deserts, for example. We don't have the possibility to run for many, many miles or kilometers in the wilderness um, on like maybe without doing that much elevation, like in the US, like in the US it's possible to run, I don't know, hundred miles without touching a road um, and do, yeah, relatively low elevation here is just not possible and maybe not even in the mountains. So I think yeah one aspect is of course the culture the history and then the second one is probably also the the geography europe is so small after all yeah it's i mean a great example this is i was i went to flagstaff last year to train before western states because yeah again there's like to in order for me to run on the type of terrain of western states it would be quite difficult to do here at home because yeah. every flat run I go on still has a thousand meters of elevation gain, which is a fifth of all of Western States. So yeah. So I was in Flagstaff and I was planning like my long run. This was like maybe the first week I was there and I was like, okay, I have like a longer run tomorrow. And I was kind of mapping it out. And then I was like, okay, it's going to be, I don't know, four or five hours. 
And then I started thinking about how much water I needed to bring. And I was like, oh, no, I don't even oh, there's not going to be any water on this run because it's mostly in the desert. And then I was texting um, like Abby Hall, who was in Flagstaff, like, what, how do you like do water you here? Because <laughs> normally I just like, you know, plan my run. I know where the fountain is in the next village or I know where the fountain or like the spring is that comes out of the hillside that I know is like 99% clean. Um, and she was like, oh, you don't have a filter bottle. So then like I'm driving to the to the store the night before to like buy my first filter bottle so that I could get water from a river. Um, and yeah, this was just like so out like off my radar that that's what you had to do was like or carry. You know, I would never run from home with more than a liter of water ever because yeah. for sure I'm going to find water yeah. somewhere. Um, but yeah, then when I was in the U S for that, like two months last year, I was regularly running with like leaving with like two liters of water. So that was just like a really small example, but <laughs> it's very different. Um, just everything is very different when you plan a run or yeah, for sure. The terrain, like you can't live in the mountain. Like there's very few places you can live in the mountains as we do in Europe. I always laugh when like we drive into Chamonix because if Chamonix Valley was like in the US, it would be closed like in Salange and you would it would be like a national park all the way to Switzerland yeah. where you have to like <laughs> either take a shuttle or like have to hike in or something. And then you drive in and there's just like this huge town with, you know, climbing gym outside and track and cable cars everywhere. Um, yeah. yeah, very different approach. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, you mentioned the preparation for Western States last year. Um, I don't want to recap all your performances. I and I think I think you've already talked about 2023 in a in other podcasts. For example, I really enjoyed your conversation with Fian, where you recap the Grand Raid and and your 2023 season. Um but I'm more interested in, in talking about the training. And uh, I know that you're coached by Jason Coop. Um, how much voice do you have when you sign your training plan? Like how, how do you work with him to set your goals and set up the preparation that leads to each goal of your season? Yeah. Um, I would say it's pretty like it's a pretty fluid relationship. It's not like a, there's no rules. <laughs> like I wouldn't say that I can describe it really that easily because it's kind of uh, for sure. With when we first started working together, I told him I wanted to do UTMB. That was my main goal for twenty twenty two, and everything was like leading up to that. And then along the way, I was the one who chose. Like I did. 2022 I did the maxi race marathon and then I did Valderon 100k and I chose both of those things I was just like I want to do this and that what do you think and he was like yeah it looks good and then that's the end of the you know I, there was no like okay and then no discussion what is the <laughs> optimal yeah um and then preparing for western states was pretty similar I I mean he knows way more about western states than I do so I said, I want it. Like, I think what it comes down to is he lets me find my own motivation for like which events I want to do. And then I kind of go to him for like, 
okay, this is what I want to do. How do we make it work? I imagine if I ever said something he thought was like totally ridiculous, he would tell me like if I wanted to do a a hundred K four days before UTMB, (laughs) he would say like, that's probably not a good idea, but I do think I've been in the sport long enough and like am aware of how training works enough to make well-informed decisions on my own and then ask him for either validation or his opinion or um, yeah, how it could fit into the grand scheme of things. Um, But the main thing is that the athlete is motivated by the event because the event is like such a small piece of all the training. Yeah. You have to wake up motivated to do the training. So you want to make sure that what you're doing is what you really want to be doing. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And how do you go about like actually writing the, the training plan? Like how much influence do you have? How much um, flexibility you have in your, your daily training? Like you just, talk to your coach for like key workouts or do you update him on a daily basis? Um, How do you handle the balance between volume and intensity of your training, for example? Yeah, that's also something that changes like a lot during the year. Um, For example, like, I don't know, what is it, January? So the last, I don't know, month, probably from like November through February, we don't really talk that much because I mean, he'll like write my training schedule um, but I also, I think I also know the times of years when it's important to follow the schedule, like, you know, at 90% and when I can kind of veer off on my own. Um, so yeah, these, like this kind of time frame, I'm a bit looser about following things perfectly, but I will admit that I do like follow my training schedule, like pretty closely. Um, obviously there's times where like last weekend, I said, okay, it's snowing. I'm going to do some big ski days because I really want to go ski. And that's not an issue at all. That's, it's just about like back and forth, like, okay, I'm going to go do a big ski weekend. And then he can adjust what the next days look like knowing that I did that. So, um, yeah, it's, I would say it's more like he writes the training plan. I will put things in that are happening, like, especially in the winter, I do a lot of some like smaller schema races or a vertical race or like this weekend, I'm, I'm doing a cross country running race. Cool. So I'll like put those things in that I want to do. And then we basically use them as workouts in the winter. Um, I don't like, you know, I'm not like tapering for that. It's just yeah. uh, in place of a workout essentially. Um and then we go from there. Yeah. As the season, as like the bigger objectives come closer, then things get like, you know, nailed down a bit tighter. Yeah. And uh, how would you describe like a preparation for a main focus of the season, like last year's Western State or 2022 UTMB? Um. Like what's your, what's the philosophy of your training for those events? Yeah, the general philosophy is um, to get more specific the closer you get to the race. So um, that's why right now I'm doing like shorter stuff or it actually just kind of works out really well that I like doing schema in the winter. It's a lot more intense. Yeah, it's a lot higher intensity and then and it's not running. So that's probably the least specific you could get and then move towards, um, 
more specific specificity as you get closer to the event. So UTMB, I was did a ton of skiing that winter because I had more time ahead until August. Then like, you know, slowly made the transition. I was like kind of biking, running in the transition phase to not start running like at a hundred percent right when the snow melted. Um, and then, yeah, just running on terrain similar to the race, basically. I mean, it's not that complex, really. It's just, it's the same, I, the same thing I did for Western States. I just like put myself in the environment on the type of terrain that the race would be on. And that's the most specific you can get. So, yeah. Yeah, agree. Um, when When you pick your goals, how much are you attracted by the competitive part of racing in an event like Western State or UTMB? And how much are you motivated by the adventure aspect of a race like Diagonal de Fou, for example? Yeah, I think each race for me has like... I, find, I can find motivate like the short answer is I can find motivation in both of those things. And I don't, it doesn't really change my approach to the race. It's just in my head. I know like, it's like a different style of motivation, I guess. Um, I would say right now in my career, I'm like way more motivated by the competitive aspect because I know I don't have like an enormous window in which I can maintain that. So it's kind of like I have the opportunity now to compete with the best in the world. So that's what I want to do now. And at the same time, I can still, I mean, Diagonal de Fou wasn't totally non-competitive. Um, it's definitely less competitive than Western States when, when you have, yeah, such a deep field on the start line. Um, but Yeah, it's more like deciding, okay, is this race, am I here really because I'm like so motivated by the course itself or am I motivated by seeing what I can do on the course in this field of other athletes? I would say if Western States wasn't competitive, it wouldn't be the course that would motivate me the most. Um, it's it's uh motivating because of the history but it's not you're not going to go run there and be like wow this is the most beautiful place i've ever been like it's nice but it's it's way nicer to run from my house than the it's western of course yeah <laughs> so yeah I, every race has its different motivations and honestly sometimes it's neither of those things like eco trail paris for example i was like very motivated for that it wasn't really? extremely competitive And it also wasn't, I wasn't like motivated by the course either. I was motivated by the step it would bring me in my training and like motivated by seeing, okay, this is a type of race that is going to be really challenging for me because I don't do a lot of like really fast flat running for long periods of time. So it was more like motivation from the challenge of what was in front of me neither not the course or the competition <laughs> yeah 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 i i get that and um since i know you're signed up to western state 2024 um i think your motivation is to of course to try to to do your best and to win 
uh, since you were second last year. What are you doing differently from 2023 in your preparation and approach to the race? Um, not much. <laughs> Uh, the only difference is that I have a year of experience behind me. And I think that's. It was that's the first like, time last year for you, right? Yeah, it was my first. Wow. It was my first. Well, I did a 50. I did like two 50 Ks in the U.S. in 2015. So it was my first like kind of bigger ultra event in the U.S. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so basically just I'll have one year behind me. I don't plan to make any drastic changes. I think it worked pretty well last year. And adding on a year of experience, I think, is it's not the time to be, like, changing my whole training philosophy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course, considering that you went under the old course record and it was an incredible performance and would have been a win in every year, except that there was Courtney with you. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um, are you someone who tends to get like, like when you go to a race, do you usually get it right from the first time or did, does it take you maybe two or three tries for you to feel like you got the best out of it? You know what I mean? Like, of course, for Western State last year, it was, I think you couldn't hope for any better. Um, but in other circumstances like UTMB or other races that you've done what it's what it's been like yeah I think it's more a question of like um my time in the sport than like my the number of times I've done a specific race like you can see pretty clearly at UTMB that it was not uh did not go well the first time although it did go well at CCC the first time um there was two years at UTMB where it was not great and it did take, I don't think it, it's hard to explain, but like, I, I think because of those kind of lower performances um, at UTMB in 2019 and 2021, it's what kind of pushed me to find a solution to the problem. So it was kind of the like kick in the butt to be like, okay, why isn't this working? Like, I feel like I'm doing everything to make it work. What do I need to do differently? And that's honestly when I made um, the coaching change. Yeah. And that I think helped me a lot, not just in the, not just in like my day-to-day -day schedule. It's not like hugely different, but I will say like, just, I think when you make a coaching change or you make a change, I don't know, with a sponsor or with, uh, your nutrition strategy like even just saying you're making a change is something that kind of reorients you and kind of like gives you a fresh start and I think I sort of gave myself a fresh start after UTMB 2021 and I kind of felt like I was coming to UTMB 2022 as like a new athlete even though not that much had really changed it was just more of like a mindset yeah. change yeah. And that's not to say, I don't want to sound like my <laughs> old coaching situation wasn't very good because it was very good. It brought me like a lot of early success that I built my now success off of. Um, it was more that I needed to like have a new approach to everything and kind of like just shift what I was doing. Um, but always without your, you know, that's where I came from. I like, I wouldn't have had my success now without 
all that success I had at, at the very beginning, even though it wasn't, you know, as, uh, as like amazing on paper, it was like a pretty quick rise into the sport, I think. Um, and I'm really proud of that. And yeah, so, so yeah, it's been kind of a, I see 2022 as sort of a turning point. And that, that does also coincide with when I finished my PhD and like yeah. moved more full-time to France, which gave me a lot more stability than when I was living in Zurich by myself and like always traveling to meet Germain or like he was taking the brunt of more of the organization and sponsor stuff. And now I'm able to like be more at 50, 50 and, I feel more like in control of my career than before when I was like trying to finish my work, manage, uh, you know, the normal stuff, organize racing. And yeah, it's kind of been, I think my PhD, honestly, like sort of marks a shift in, in everything too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And you mentioned several interesting things and one is of course the the courage it takes to to make a change in your life in your training whatever because it gives you a different mindset in the approach to new things or even the same things that you try to to improve on and um i was also reflecting on like okay so like maybe technically your training hasn't been drastically different from 2021 to 2022 and onwards but like how much of a difference it makes to yeah of course to to, to really turn pro but also to I don't know have other life changes and, and factors that ultimately affect the way you approach training like I'm thinking if you for example, if you had kept the same coach and the same training style and like after you finished your PhD in Zurich and decided to, to go pro, would that have had the same results as, you know, your current situation or it wouldn't? Because I think like, it's not that it's not very important what we actually do in training, but like training is training as long as you do something it usually works um at least that's how i feel like yeah you can obsess over like should i do a vo2 max workout or a tempo run or or whatever but as long as you do it you're building your fitness but if you're like if your life is not organized in a way that allows you to focus on training and um i don't know just being present in the moment and uh and focused on what you're doing i think that is probably the the biggest limiting factor to your performance yeah yeah it's definitely not like if i don't I know if i can workout. make myself explain like it's, it's <laughs> yeah, a difficult idea to, I see, to express yeah I, I mean it's not like oh because i did this interval session and you did that interval session that it, like drastically changes anything yeah. for sure um it's more about managing the long term managing all the little things around it um and also yeah just obviously your mentality too is huge um in racing in in something where you're not just for the racing part but also for the training part like 
I think we forget people talk about like being mentally prepared for a race, but you also need to be mentally like, uh, I want to say stable, but it doesn't really sound like the right word, but like you need to be mentally prepared just every day. Like it's not easy yeah, to, like to train mentally every ready day. To, to accept the training, to accept yeah. the, the effort that it takes. Yeah. You have to be the one who like presses start on your watch when you step outside and like start running or like do your really hard interval session or you also have to be the one who when your friend calls and is like hey i'm gonna do this like huge yeah, eight hour ski day tomorrow do you want to come with me and you're like oh but i i it's supposed to be an easy day i was supposed to be a rest day and you, you have to be the one to make that call and that's for sure not on the coach at all like you can have the best coach in the world and not do well like that's yeah that's <laughs> it's it's not it's more about the relationship about like it's how you approach it, how much time and energy you put into explaining how you feel, making the right decision for you in the moment. Um, so, yeah, it's com it's complex. And there's also tons of people who do really well being self-coached. And that's, I think, for my personality, I don't think that would work well because I don't, I kind of like offloading it to somebody else, but I see, I mean, you see both Jim and Courtney are self-coached and it seems to be okay. Um, so yeah, it's more about finding like what keeps you stable, what keeps your energy going, what, if you can make the right decisions for yourself and it, it's, yeah, I, I guess it's pretty complex. I mean, I've found, I think I've found something that works for me. But I know Absolutely. that it's not the solution for everybody. So that's why I don't like tell everyone they should go yeah, do yeah. the same thing as me. That's also why I'm exactly. like totally a hundred percent like open with, I put everything on Strava because I'm like, if someone wants to copy what I'm doing, go for it. But you don't have the same life as me. So it won't work the same way. Um, yeah. I, I feel like there's no need to like hide anything because we're all so individual that, the way something plays out for each person is so different. Hundred percent, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I can very much relate to to a post that you wrote. I think at the end of twenty twenty three, where you you kind of expressed this this idea, um, turning is individual, and of course, what you're doing works for you. Uh, and I think it it's taken a lot of adjustments and fine tuning and um, an effort to get to where you are like it's not like you found the perfect recipe from day one um but it's allowed you to to be who you are and uh, you know with all your success and and even failures like just like everyone else um coming back to when you mentioned um that you decided to turn pro it was at the end of your phd i remember i remember you explaining that it was maybe the time of your career where you felt the most pressure um because you thought that you could maybe have a future as a pro runner and um you were like maybe putting some pressure on yourself to do something good and uh attract a sponsor and make it financially possible to 
to be a professional runner. Um, now you have the results that back you up and allow you to to be a pro. Um, do you feel pressure to maintain your current level or current like status as an athlete? Um, yeah, so what I think maybe you heard in my talk, my discussion with Finn on, on that podcast, yeah. but that was actually in 2018. So it was in the middle of my PhD. Um, when I felt like a lot of pressure, it was actually before CCC, I felt a lot of pressure, um, there more than I've felt before, I think. And yeah, from there I was able to, to like, you know, get the ball rolling and now finally be at a point where it's like, uh, or I can be like full-time professional athlete, but I don't feel, I think it's <laughs> the answer to the question is that it's not, if I get to the point where I'm concerned about like pressure to maintain results, then I don't think that my mindset is in the right place to be in the sport because I, when I go to a race, it's because I want to do the race. I've never gone to a race where I'm like, Oh, they're making me do a race. Like, okay. If I feel like that, I just stop doing this as my job because I'm in a unique position where I like get to choose my job and like I chose a job that I love. So if I don't love it anymore, I don't have to keep doing it. Like there's other things I can do. So no, if I ever felt like pressure from a sponsor, I would either like, I would first ask the sponsor, like why they're pressuring me, maybe not work with them anymore. And also ask myself why, like, why can I not find my own motivation? So yeah, I don't know if that's a full answer. No, no, it, it totally makes sense. Um, I'm asking because it's something that I've been struggling with. Like, I don't know, maybe I don't have a the same relationship that you have with your your sponsors, for example. Or yeah, of course we're we're different people, different athletes, uh, with different experiences, but to me, like I'm always somehow trying to demonstrate something not that I have to impress my sponsors or or anything but like ha I have to achieve something and not just you know go to a race for the pure joy and experience that comes with it um just on a personal perspective I don't know if I can yeah I think that I think that now in the sport, or at least my experience has been that brands are seeing that there's more than just like your number result on the, on the results sheet. They're like, if you yeah, go to the race, you're having a great time and you like totally love it. You're probably going to do pretty well. First of all, cause you're like yeah. mentally in the right place. Maybe you come in sixth instead of fourth or third, but there's still like a lot to be said about those athletes. Like we know, there's athletes we can name who do not win races that we follow because we find them inspiring. It yeah, doesn't yeah, mean they have to true. win. That's true. But like the feedback that I I've got is pretty much the opposite. So I don't know. I, I don't want to go too deep into this because it's, it's a pretty sensitive topic for me, but 
I know that the like normal situation is more like the one you described, but for me, it's been different. So I've been like, honestly struggling a little bit with, with, with pressure and with just like dealing with my sponsors and yeah, my number one sponsor actually. Um, so yeah, it hasn't been totally easy and looking at the future, like for example, this year planning my season, I can't say I'm not doing doing it with the intent to prove something to them because I feel like there is some need to to prove them something that I don't know maybe it just comes from myself but I'm feeling it. Yeah, I think I mean of course I say that at the end of the day if I did only local races and well <laughs> who knows, but if I did like, you know, only local races and was finishing 10th at all the local races for two years, maybe, you know, I, <laughs> but I just feel like internally, I wouldn't feel comfortable being a professional athlete if I was doing that. Yeah. And I don't see you as someone who's only signing up for your local race. Like we see you on the T biggest totally stage. Not. <laughs> yeah. I try to time. go where yeah, so... there is the most the the highest competition like usually yeah. of course i try to pick goals that i see as achievable that sometimes are, are a little scary of course it's it's fun to put yourself into a challenge but i'm mostly inspired by the competition and i've always tended to go where the level was higher so yeah i think that if that, if yeah. a if a sponsor or a working relationship doesn't see the level that somebody is at or like that they are continuously putting themselves in the most competitive races so the chance of you know winning is not that high um if you only go to zigama marathon du mont blanc series you know like your chance of winning all three in one season is is really not that high like we can be honest about that so the for sure you you have to it's just important that everyone in the sport and around the sport supporting athletes like understands what's going on at that level and um it's a growing like trail running itself is like a growing sport so maybe not everybody um understands all the like little niche parts of it yet but i think that we're getting there and i think more people are catching on to that and we see a lot of the way i see that is like a lot of brands who are putting money into like development teams or like yep. just providing athletes with gear like showing like hey we support you we know you're you know 20 years old and this is your first time going to the marathon du mont blanc but like we want you to feel supported and kind of like putting the yeah just putting the backing there before like before they even you know finish in the top 20 or something so I think that's really cool for me to see because it's something that wasn't there when we were first getting into the sport. Um, and so I hope that that like motivates more young athletes to to come into it. And that's for sure going to make it even more competitive. So <laughs> there's yeah. going to have to be more understanding about the level. Yeah, I think we're actually the, the same age. So we're probably getting into the sport pretty much at the same time. Do you wish like you were a young athlete now that the sport is not necessarily booming, but growing and expanding and a lot more popular than say 10 years ago, or 
like are you happy to be where you are right now and to have gone through like almost the early days of trail running at least in Europe No, I'm really happy with like how I found the sport and how I got into it because I totally found it just because I absolutely loved doing this activity and I didn't even know that there was races. I just went like fast hiking and ran downhill with my friends in the mountains and then learned that there was races and that you could compete in this thing we were doing that we just called hiking and that it's actually called running. Um, so that for me was... Like, I just, I feel like I come from just loving the sport itself. And I feel lucky to have that as like my base. Um, I think now, as I said, I mean, there's like brands putting support behind younger athletes. And I, I think that's really cool. But I also am kind of happy that I didn't have that at the, really at the beginning, like that I found it on my own and that I was 100% sure it was something I wanted to do regardless of being supported by a brand or by somebody else. Like I was like my first race, um, in Europe was the Limone or one of my first races in Oh, yeah. Europe was the Limone, uh, sky race. And I like took a train from Zurich. I met Mika Steiner in the Engadine and then his brother drove us to Limone. And it was just like such a weekend adventure just to do this one race. And, Yeah, it was it was so cool for me, you know, like I had so much fun and that I was not interested in being a professional athlete. You know, I was just starting my PhD and it was just like a fun way to spend the weekend. And now I get to do that as my job, which, yeah, it's pretty cool. And so I just feel super happy that that's like where my love for the sport comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it feels similar for me because I had never imagined 10 years ago to, you know, live from the sport. And I was I was not doing a PhD, but I was um graduating from university in, in physics, which is a pretty hard topic. Um <laughs> so like my life took a totally different turn or yeah, unexpected circumstances <laughs> or chances. Um, and yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I think there's, there are still young athletes who Oh yeah. are super passionate by the, by the sport, even though they have, you know, free shoes or, you know, some type of sponsor deal. So that's cool too. I'm just kind of glad that I didn't have to like navigate that. Yeah. Yeah. True. How's your relationship with Germain? Like, like, do you train together and like how, How do you go about like cooking and cleaning and house chores and, and all of that being two professional athletes in the same house? Um, yeah, well, at the beginning when I was just visiting all the time, then we did everything together. Like we did all our training together because I would come for like, I don't know, four days. And then obviously we were going to go running together. He wasn't going to just like leave me. <laughs> um, but then when I'm, moved here more full-time we kind of tried to keep training together all the time and realized that it was probably better that we just train separately since we are in a really? pretty unique situation where we spend the entire day together otherwise oh, yeah. uh yeah <laughs> since we like live in a village of 50 people and uh yeah it's it's a very like yeah we're together all the time so we kind of At this point, we rarely train together. I would say maybe 
in the winter more because we're skiing and then there's like the safety aspect um in the summer maybe like once every two weeks we'll do like an easy run together um but I honestly like just prefer to have my alone time when I'm training and then come back and then we're actually happy to see each other not like oh you were running slightly too fast oh you were slightly <laughs> too slow <laughs> um but then yeah at home it's I mean we both have each other's training schedules so we kind of like know what the other one's doing and um yeah I don't, I don't know it's I guess I don't really know what it would be like if we were like gone and then came back um <laughs> is it hard I, to survive the week like keep the house clean and cook and and everything like that um i don't think it's because we with my girlfriend have, like, we're like she has a full-time job and she's also an athlete and we're always struggling a little bit on this aspect <laughs> uh yeah i think because so, we both I mean, there's always, it's not like we train five hours every day. There's for sure yeah. easy days in there. And then you just like, you know, move around. Okay. Today I only had a easy run. So I'm going to like, you know, clean a little bit more or whatever. But I mean, I really like cooking. So I would say I generally am the one who takes the initiative on, on cooking just because I do like it and I get hungrier earlier. So I'm like, all right, let's get the food going. But Jean like he does other things that I don't do I don't know it's like a normal relationship where different tasks <laughs> are partitioned to different people um obviously he he probably gets more it's not really 50, I try to make it 50 50 but because we are living in France there are and I don't speak French as a first language there are some limitations with like things that I can and cannot do um so there for sure he takes a little bit more uh I would say like the logistical paperwork side of things um, when needed. So that I'm grateful for because otherwise it would be very hard to live here as, yeah. as an American. <laughs> cool. Um, final question before we, we close off. Um, no, no want to keep you for, for too long. Um, what's maybe a message that you've tried to spread or make people aware um, through your career or even on social media that hasn't been received with the same level or of interest or care or with the same intention that it has for you? Um, hmm. If you could explain something to the world, especially the trail running community, what would it be? I would say, yeah, I mean, like kind of the easier one that I did sort of like write a small post about at the end of 2023 was just that like training doesn't need to be complex or complicated and that there's no, each person is so different and not to like, not to see like some workout that some elite athlete did and think that that means that's why they are an elite athlete um there's lots of things that elite athletes do that we can do and it's not going to change the outcome like I feel like sometimes we see an elite athlete who does okay this one workout and we're like that is why they are so good but actually they are just so good and they happen to also do this workout 
that 99% of the time it's that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> and when I talk to people who are maybe not at the, you know, competing at the same level, they're like, think that they need to do these things because so-and-so does this thing. But I always ask them like, but if so-and-so did this, does that mean that that's why they're also good? Like if they eat carrots for dinner every night, does that mean that you have to eat carrots for dinner every night? Like there's a difference between being like performing well and knowing what makes you perform well. Um, yeah. The, I think the cause effect relationship yeah. between the two things is not very well understood. And I also like the whole process of process of training um it's not very common to talk to people who fully understand i mean i don't fully understand it of course and nobody does but um there is not like a direct cause effect relationship between the workout that you do and how much you improve from that single workout all the time so it's more like a holistic pro holistic process that hopefully <laughs> increases your fitness and ability to run faster and longer so yeah yeah i yeah. think it's for sure it's more like long term yeah. i mean i think the biggest thing is just like long term training but if i were to look to someone for advice on training i would not ask an elite athlete because at <laughs> some point their genetics have allowed them to make a lot of mistakes and i would look to someone who wasn't very good and then got a lot better they're the better person to to ask for for advice <laughs> yeah. Katie, thank you very much it's been fun to talk and learn from you um i hope we can cross paths again this year i don't know if you'll be i mean i had i still have to like decide my racing schedule i'll be i think i'll be in the u.s in the spring um cool. so yeah hopefully see you soon yeah maybe see you in america then it'll be fun Cool. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our great interview today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us with a rating and a review in your podcast player or by sharing it on social media, tagging me and Vertron. We would really appreciate that. If you haven't already downloaded the Vertron app, I encourage you to do so. There, you can connect for free with our trail runners of all levels in the Vertran community in our in-app groups. You can stay in trail shape with our free workout videos and get affordable coaching for your next trail running goal for only $25 a month. Thanks again for being here today. Until next time, I'm Francesco Puppi. Thank you for listening to Running Long. <laughs>